faith, trust. We practice faith and we practice trust. All throughout life's journey, we sit down in a chair, trusting that it will hold us up. We tell a secret to a good friend, trusting them to keep it confidential. We present a $5 bill at Turkey Hill for a gallon of gas, trusting, trusting that that paper is valuable to the seller. We have faith in a doctor to provide a correct diagnosis and to prescribe treatment or medications that will be helpful. A lot rides on what or in whom we are placing our faith. And that's Paul's points in the text before us. If you haven't done so yet, would you please turn in your copy of the Scriptures to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10 in your copy of God's Word. Be reminded as you find your place uh, of the incredible gift that it is to possess God's Word. Many people in our world don't have a copy of God's Word. We have it. We have it recorded for us. We have many copies of it in our homes, in our lives. Be reminded of the gift that it is. Paul's letter to, to the Romans is his teaching about the undeserved, unmatched, and the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. We're working our way through systematically this, this, this letter to the church at Rome, and specifically in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul uses this section to communicate a defense, if you will, of the gospel of Jesus. The gospel's defense, meaning how it works, especially within the realms of God's sovereignty and how it works with, with his special people, the Jewish people. Paul addresses Israel's unbelief, specifically within the context of the question that we find in chapter 9, verse 6. Has the word of God failed? Paul was burdened for Israel to be saved. That was the prayer of his hearts, as we saw last week. The problem is that Israel was looking for salvation through their own self-righteousness, through their own obedience, instead of looking to Jesus. In the passage that we consider today, we again see that whether Jew or Gentile, salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the object of Christian faith. Friend, if you don't have faith in Jesus, you don't have salvation. Brothers and sisters, your faith is in Jesus. If it is in Jesus, that is a gift that yields to eternal life, and it also calls you towards living for Jesus. Would you please follow along as I read from God's Word, Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse number 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near to you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, 
everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here, Paul gives us another look at the responsibility of someone to place their faith in Jesus in order to experience salvation. Some people in our world underestimate, underemphasize the necessity of personal faith and instead only focus on the sovereignty of God in salvation. Some other people overemphasize the necessity of, of personal faith and instead make it out, make out salvation to be apart from God's sovereign election, that it's all up to an individual. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to understand that salvation is always by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. God's sovereignty in salvation does not cancel out the need for personal faith, and personal faith does not cancel out God's electing work in salvation. So here's the main thoughts of this sermon this morning from Romans 10, verses 5 through 13. Christian faith is simple, is confessional, and is promising because of the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. Anyone who has that faith will be saved. Anyone who doesn't will be condemned. So let's give some thought this morning to the simple, confessional, and promising faith that we have in Jesus. First, we understand that Christian faith is simple. I want to read verses 5 through 8 again. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will to descend into the abyss? that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near to you, in your mouth and in your hearts. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Sometimes we make stuff more difficult than it really is. Paul gives to us here three impossible scenarios to remind us that faith is not intended to be complex, but that actually faith is simple. First, he takes us back to, to Moses. He says that the one impossible scenario is law-keeping. We've, we've covered that theological truth quite a bit recently in our study. Paul reminds us that Moses taught about being made right with God through perfect obedience to the law of God. If you obeyed perfectly, you would have eternal life. But that's not the whole story, is it? Because perfect obedience is, is an impossible scenario for mere humans. Moses taught whoever relies on their own obedience to the law is held accountable for everything that the law requires. But even the commandments of the Old Testament law were not primarily a call to external obedience. Foundationally, primarily. Primarily, the Old Testament law was a call to people to have faith in the God of mercy and love. In the New Testament, in, in James' epistle, in James chapter 2, we read, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point of it has become guilty of all of it. Failing in any point of the law makes one guilty of all of the law. 
So pursuing the righteousness by the law will result in someone being judged by that standard, by the law. And that doesn't end well because none of us can keep the law. Christian faith knows that we don't need to keep the law in order to be righteous. Brothers and sisters, be reminded of the perfect law keeper, Jesus Christ. Rest in him. This isn't a call to sloppy spiritual living. This isn't a call to stop pursuing holiness. Rather, this is a reminder that your righteous standing before Almighty God doesn't come from your ability to keep the law. Law keeping is impossible for us. There's a second impossible scenario that, that Paul presents to us that's bringing Christ down from heaven. The apostle tells us that righteousness doesn't come by us going to heaven to bring Jesus down to the earth. We can't do that. Besides that, Jesus has already come to the earth. There is no need to travel to heaven to bring Christ to the earth since God has already sent his son. This is an exaggerated example to point us back to the simplicity of Christian faith. Christian faith knows that you don't need to scale heaven in order to be righteous before God. Thirdly, he says, likewise, descending into death to bring Christ up is impossible. Nobody should think that they must bring Christ up from the dead since God has already raised Christ from the dead. Descending into the the depths of the oceans to raise him from the dead is not necessary or even possible. Christian faith knows that you don't need to deal with your own sins through death in order to be righteous before God. One preacher put it this way. The righteousness of faith does not require some mystical and impossible journey through the universe to find Christ. Friends, salvation is not some divine escape room, if you will. It's not some escape room experience where you figure out all the riddles to unlock the next step in the process of freedom from bondage. God is not requiring some superhuman work or any kind of complex arrangement for you to be clothed with his righteousness. God's plan of salvation is is not some impossible formula. It's not some complex equation where you have to have every little piece right in order. Christian, remember that truth as you evangelize. God's simple plan of salvation. That gives us confidence as we evangelize. We hold the good news. It's exclusive. There is only one way to God, and it's a simple way. So so Paul outlines these three impossible scenarios, and then he goes into verse 8, and he tells us about proclaiming the faith, the word of faith that is near to you. God only requires faith in the gospel of Jesus. Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30 about a word of faith And it's actually embodied in Christ. Moses knew that faith is simply about what you say, that that faith is simply what you say with your mouth because you already believe it in your own hearts. R.C. Sproul said it this way, the central truth about justification is not so high or so abstract or so deep or so profound as to be beyond our understanding. Understanding the gospel does not require a Ph.D. in theology. The gospel is near. 
to us. It's near to us. It's within our grasp. Have you ever been so close to something that you missed it? I know there are dangers in stereotypes, but there's also usually at least some level of truth in many stereotypes. So men, you may not be like what I'm about to describe, but certainly some of us are. When the toothpaste tube or the shampoo bottle runs out, I think I know what to do. I walk to the closet where I know there are multiple tubes of toothpaste and bottles of shampoo awaiting me. Maybe Tara generously offers up something like, what are you doing? I can get what, what you need. And with confidence in my voice and with humility in my heart, I'm so sure, I respond, no, I got this. I'm just replacing the empty shampoo bottle. I open the closet. There are four shelves with supplies and various things. I scan across them and then I look more carefully for some label that says full body VO5 or something to that effect. Still not finding it. Getting a little bit nervous at this point. I give myself a little pep talk. Okay, I know I got the right closet. I'm in the right house. It should say shampoo on the bottle. Don't turn this into a husband fail. You can do this, John. After a few minutes, Tara passes down the hall again. Hands it to me, and I'm scrambling for words to justify my ineptness. Once again. Maybe a slight exaggeration, but sometimes we don't see what's right in front of us. Paul tells us that the gospel is near to us. The word of faith is simple. Christian faith is not intended to be, to be complex. Jesus said, allow the little children to come to me. Children have much to learn later in life, but they can understand what Jesus has done for them. Children can have faith in Jesus. Boys and girls, God is angry about your sin. God is angry because you are a sinner. But... Jesus died to take away, to remove God's anger for your sin. Jesus died in your place so that God wouldn't be angry with your sin anymore. You can believe that. You can trust that Jesus made God angered no more because of your sin. The Apostle Paul wants us to know that the object of our faith is near to us. God's way of salvation has been clearly revealed. Israel had been completely surrounded with this word of faith that Paul was teaching about. And our world is the same way. Brothers and sisters, certainly Lancaster County is the same way. We are inundated with the word of faith around us. Christian faith knows that Christ has kept the law. He came to the earth for us. He died for us. He has risen for us. And that is enough. It's as simple as that. Christian faith is simple. It's confessional. And it's promising because of the object of that faith, Jesus Christ. So we've seen that Christian faith is simple because its object is Jesus Christ who came and lived among us. But Paul moves now in verses 9 and 10 to explain to us that Christian faith is confessional as well. We, we confessed our faith in Jesus this morning as we read from the HBC's Statement of Faith, three paragraphs. 
God does not require some superhuman ability or perfect law-keeping. Rather, he requires faith in his son, Jesus. Paul clearly outlines what that faith looks like. True righteousness is not on what we do. It's based on what we believe, on who the object of our faith is. So we see, first of all, verse number 9, that we are confessing that Jesus is Lord. An acknowledgement that Jesus is the ruler of every sphere of our life. Faith is both private and public. Faith is private in our heart, what you believe, and he'll repeat that in verse number 10. But faith is public in how you live or how you walk. You profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Baptism is another way that we are public about our faith in Christ. Our lives are to give outward evidence of an inward faith. Christian faith confesses that Jesus is Lord. The rich young ruler had troubles with that, didn't he? He appeared to be willing to do everything that Jesus told him to do in order to have eternal life except to acknowledge his own sin. The rich young ruler didn't want Jesus to be Lord of his life. Christian faith confesses that Jesus is Lord. How might that look in your life? Jesus is not the Lord of your life if you're always resisting the authority in your life. Because we are to obey those who have authority, who have rule over us. Jesus is not the Lord of your life if you are proud, selfish, and inconsiderate with the wife that God gave you to cherish. Jesus is not the Lord of your life if you are not caring for your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit by being a glutton. Jesus is not the Lord of your life if you are engrossed in pornography or if sexual sin is a mainstay in your life, physically or mentally. Jesus is not the Lord of your life if you are holding on to some area of, of life, some secret sin, some category of your life over which you say, no, that is mine. I want what I want in this area of life. Rather, Christian faith says, Christian faith says take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, my hands, my feet, my voice, my lips, my silver and my gold, my talents, my will, my heart. Christian faith says, Jesus, I am yours. It's confessing that Jesus is Lord. It's also confessing that Jesus has been raised. We see in verse number 9 the re that, that we are confessing that Christ has been raised from the dead. It's not just an academic head knowledge in believing that some, some event happened, a historical event that Jesus literally rose from the dead. It's, it's more than that. It's belief in his resurrection that Jesus took your place, that he was raised for you in your behalf, that Jesus' victory is your victory, that, that God the Father has approved of Christ's work on the cross, and therefore God the Father is communicating to us that he is appeased, that he is no longer angered because of our sin against him, that he has accepted what Jesus did in our place. Christian faith that believes that God raised Jesus from the dead. So Christian, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we gather on the first day of the week, every week, to celebrate, to commemorate Christ's resurrection. 
Coming to church is a group gathering that remembers that we have victory because of what Christ did for us. I know I'm the pastor, but I don't really understand why Christians stay home from church so often. Gathering together is our way of saying thank you to God. It's our way of, of, of thanking God for raising Jesus from the dead, and that's of the utmost importance to our eternity. Christian, find rest for your weary soul in a resurrected Christ. Don't wallow in your failure. Don't rehearse your shortcomings. Rejoice that every one of your stinking sins is under the blood of Jesus. So we confess that Jesus is Lord. Christian faith confesses a resurrected Christ. Christian faith confesses, is confessing is, that, is, that justifies. And we see that in verse number 10. Paul gives a little bit of a repeat of, of verse number 9 in verse number 10. He's talking about declaring with your mouth and that God declares you to be justified. I recently read John Meacham's work on Thomas Jefferson, who did so much work on the Declaration of Independence for our nation. It was a document that declared our country to be independent of another country. Our nation was declaring allegiance and claiming autonomy. Paul tells us in our confession that Jesus is Lord that we are declaring, that we are acknowledging that our only hope is in Jesus and not in ourselves. We're declaring our belief that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to the holy God of this universe. But there's a declaration by God as well. We're declaring our allegiance, but when, we, when, we, when that happens, uh, when we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead, God declares us to be righteous. We can't declare ourselves to be righteous. We have no hope to do that because we aren't righteous. But God justifies, that's a declaration that you've been moved from darkness into light. You've been declared pardoned by God. Brothers and sisters, remember your identity. You have been declared righteous. So this week, when Satan tempts you, remember your identity, that you have been justified. You've been declared righteous by God. Remember your identi uh, identity, that you've been justified. You don't have to walk in the sins that you once committed. You have been justified. God fully absolves you of all guilt in that declaration. You are pardoned. So go and live like it. We also see in verse number 10 that this confessional faith, it says, for in the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Lest we forget justification by God, being declared righteous by God results in eternal salvation. Righteousness is, is talking about what we become, and salvation is talking about what we escape. Everyone that has genuine faith in, is saved from the judgment of God at a future day. A profession of faith alone will not justify us. It's the possession of faith, not the profession of faith, that is a requirement for salvation. James tells us that even the demons believe in God, but that isn't making him, that they aren't making him a Lord of their life. It's possible for people to understand a lot about God academically and even to believe something is true historically, but if they do not repent of sin and forsake that sin, they will not be saved. Do you believe in your heart 
If so, you will escape the judgment of God for your sin. You see, Christian faith is simple, and Christian faith is confessional. Paul now moves in verses 11 through 13 to explain some of the promises. Christian faith is promising. Let me read verse 11 through 13 again. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Christian faith has promising ramifications for us. There's promise in verse number 11 of, of not being put to shame. It refers to that judgment day that we will stand before the Lord and we will not be humiliated on that day if we have faith in Jesus. Those who do not have faith will be humiliated. They will be shamed because they are sent to condemnation, eternal condemnation at that time. But for the Christian, we will not be disappointed. We are guaranteed full contentment in Jesus. We are guaranteed on that day full satisfaction that day. We will not be put to shame. We won't be disappointed because of our belief in Jesus. Our trust is in the one who can't disappoint. How many times have we been disappointed by other people? We place our faith in a teacher or a politician or a parent or a spouse or a pastor or whoever. And no matter how noble and great any of those individuals are or even just appear to be, we will experience disappointments because those men and women are mere humans. Jesus is God. He will never fail on his promises to save you. You will not be put to shame. You will not be humiliated on judgment day if your faith is in Jesus. He also tells us that there's a promise of, of no bias. This, this truth, this reality, isn't for a particular people group. It's available to, to all people peoples. There is no bias involved. There's no difference between Jew and Greek. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone needs a Savior. Everyone needs the object of their faith to be none other than Jesus Christ. There is no racial or cultural barrier to salvation. The barriers to salvation are, are personal. It's our rejection of God as an individual, not as a, as a nation. Galatians says it this way, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red, yellow, black, white. Jesus loves the little children of the world. There's a promise to every ethnicity that Jesus will rescue. He will save all who trust him. Christian, be reminded that we aren't better because we are in America. Rather, we are undeservedly blessed because we are in Christ. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about nationality. It's about grace. God's grace to Jew, Greek, Gentile, all. It's a promise of no bias. 
There's a promise of generosity that Paul points us to as well. He, said, uh, he says that God will bestow his riches on all who call on Jesus. Do you know what kind of riches God has? We read that he, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He created the planets and suspended them in space. Every molecule in existence belongs to him. And Paul tells us that God is going to richly bestow, he's going to richly bless all who call on him. That would be a great study, maybe for your personal devotions this summer. Make a list of the ways that God promises to bless his children. We talk about a stirring the heart towards worship. If you need a word of hope on this Lord's Day, this is it. God is, is, is pouring out his riches on all who have Jesus as the object of their faith. Friends, you see all the commercials. You're, you're pinged with all of the updates about the stuff of this world. We don't need the stuff of this world. We have Jesus. God is pouring out his riches on all who have called on the name of the Lord to be saved. That's his promise to us. A final promise is that salvation in, in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a quote from the Old Testament book of Joel. How many times have we quoted this verse in teaching or in preaching God's word? This verse encapsulates the generous and long-suffering heart of, that God has for those who have yet to come to faith in Jesus. This verse communicates the universal invitation to any who might hear the good news. This verse assures the rebellious sinner that there is hope for eternity. This verse provides the promise from God that we will not face condemnation if our trust is in His Son and only if our trust is in His Son. I can't give you faith. I can't change anybody's heart and give them faith to Jesus. But I can point you to the one who is the way to God. Jesus has made a way for you to be justified, for you to be declared righteous, for you to be saved from God's anger for your sin. And Jesus invites you to repent of your sin and to trust him to be the Lord of your life. Remember how we started the service? Jesus said, come unto me and I will give you rest. Have you done that? Is Jesus your Lord? If you haven't, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, talk to one of us after this service. Schedule a time with us this week that we may show you what the Bible says about being born again. Christian faith is simple. It's confessional, and it's promising because of the object of that faith, Jesus Christ. Anyone who has that faith will be saved. Anyone who doesn't will be condemned. Asking a good friend to keep a secret is not foolproof. We learned that in junior high, didn't we? Doctors are super talented, but they can't be 100% on diagnosing health problems. Sorry, doctors that are present today. In those instances where other individuals could fail, the object of our faith is not perfect. But when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our eternity, we are placing our faith in Jesus. The one who lived for us. The one who died in our place. 
the one who was gloriously raised from the dead, that is who we are calling on to be saved. Christian, your eternity is secured by Jesus himself. This frees you to live without fear. This frees you to live in hope, in the darkness of this sad world. To, it frees you to evangelize with confidence and to prioritize eternal matters over those temporary matters of this life. Harvest Bible Church, let us pursue personal, individual, and corporate worship of our Christ with the knowledge that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved.